are at the very least in significant part due to the protracted loneliness and loss of meaning that comes directly from this expressive individualism. You know, loneliness in our culture has reached epidemic proportions. Young adults in the 18 to 22-year-old bracket are the loneliest generation of all, according to the surveys. Nearly one half of all people surveyed over 65 years of age said the TV or a pet were their main source of company. The greatest increase in the types of households in Western society is solo households. People who are lonely are 32% more likely to die earlier than their connected peers, and that rates right up there with smoking and obesity as a health risk. Ideas have consequences, and, and if you were here last week, you'll understand what I'm about to say. It's the story, stupid. We have bought into a story, and stories have consequences. In spite of the incoming data, we show no inclination of retreating from our radical, expressive individualism. It reigns supreme, and we prefer to travel relationally light and to choose the unrestrained freedom, even if the ultimate cost is the isolation, the loneliness, and the loss of meaning that it brings. Paradigm shifts are slow and painful, as I said last week. Even within the church, individualism is the cultural air we breathe, and our language betrays us. I don't want to be anal about this, but nearly all our songs are focused on me language rather than us language, if you check and see. We speak of having a personal relationship with Jesus and uh, that Jesus is my personal savior, even though the Bible knows nothing of such language. Now, I, I understand what is being said by that language, and it is true that God wants to know each of us personally. However, it seems to me that what we mean by that language is, I can have a relationship with Jesus and I don't need anybody else. I recall a song way back in the 70s that uh, was kind of a popular song in the charismatic movement and one of the lines went, me and Jesus got a good thing going. We don't need anyone else to tell us what it's all about. Classic, classic individualism. Listen, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. We are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved to a faith that is alone. We seem to imagine that we can be Christians without being part of a believing community. I, I think if I asked the question, can you be a Christian and not go to church? I, I would say that most of us would choke over the no answer to that question. We were thinking, well, yes, yes, of course you can. For most people and for most of history, such a notion would have been considered the height of oxymoronic stupidity. How can you be part of a body and not be part of the body? Mark Sayers says this, the challenge faced in the church or by the church in the West is not the rise of unbelief, but rather the rise of belief that is detached from belonging. And we have divorced spirituality from ecclesiology, which is the church. I would want to say here, by the way, what God has joined together, let no man ever separate. Real Christian conversion demands that eventually its recipient be involved in both the muck and the grind of actual church life. Breathing the air of expressive individualism as we do, even many Christians who do attend church see the church primarily as a tool for their self-fulfillment. If it doesn't meet their needs, serve their purposes, then unapologetically they go church shopping. That has to be the ultimate in individualist consumerism, shopping for a family. 
Individualism fosters an impatience with people who don't serve our needs and our dreams. And when they don't, we simply leave them. We join another group, we find another job, we get other friends, we get other, another church, and ultimately even we get another spouse. You know, I, I saw a recent advertisement for a pair of sunglasses, a brand of sunglasses, and it read, girlfriends come and go, but I'll always have my sunglasses. It seems that faithfulness and monogamy are completely out of favor unless it has to do with my favorite consumer product. So much else could be said. At the other end of the scale, by the way, I won't take time to develop this, but an observation that as I look out over our culture that we seem to be going through presently is in some quarters a violent reaction to expressive individualism, and it's a knee-jerk reaction that takes us completely to the other end of the scale into what people are calling tribalism. At both the extreme left and extreme right of the political spectrum, people are joining partisan tribes. But I want to tell you the partisan tribalism that we're seeing emerge in our culture isn't anything like healthy community. That kind of tribalism is usually based on distrust, anger, and hatred. It's a them and us. It's a destroy or be destroyed. And I think tribalism is the dark twin, if you like, of community. It's community's shadow mission. I think we've got to avoid both of these extremes. And creative minorities avoid the extreme of expressive individualism at one hand and tribalism at the other. They are characterized by what we call covenantal being a covenantal community. So let's unpack this a bit. What does it mean? What is a covenant? Well, the dictionary defines covenant as a formal, solemn, binding agreement. It presupposes two or more parties who come together to make an agreement, agreeing on promises, stipulations, privileges, and responsibilities. And if you know anything about the Bible at all, you know that the concept of covenant runs right through its pages. I think most of us are aware that the Bible has come to us in the form of two covenants or two testaments, same word, same idea, the old and the new. And it's a fact, this fact is a tremendous significance that God's entire revelation to man is contained in these two covenants. The concept of covenant is absolutely central to divine revelation. When you look at scripture, you'll see covenant being entered into and enacted on two levels. First of all, there's the horizontal level. At this level, agreements or covenants are made and entered into between men or sometimes nations who are essentially equals. These, these are bilateral agreements. So for, exa for example, in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 12, it says there was peace between Hiram, who was king of Tyre, and Solomon, and they made a league together, or they made an alliance, or literally they made a covenant with each other. Fascinating thing is that 180 years later, though Hiram and Solomon are long gone, God declares through the prophet Amos that he would bring judgment on the king of Tyre, Hiram's descendant, because in verse 9 of chapter 1 it says, he did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. At a human level, God considers the breaking of covenant a very serious matter. I won't take time to look at it, but you might like to jot down Romans chapter 1 verse 31 or 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 4. Both of them talking about the nature of sin and the end of the age, and one of the features of it are covenant breakers. Some translations say traitors. Some have people who betray their friends. God considers covenant a very, very significant issue. Secondly, there is covenant at a vertical level. 
At this level, covenants are sovereignly initiated by God. Clearly, at this level, the covenant partners are not equal. It's not bilateral, it's unilateral. And the initiative is God in that he exclusively sets the terms of the covenant. Our response is to God's offer of covenant is to accept the terms and the relationship that it brings. And in the last analysis, every permanent relationship that God has with men and women is based on covenant. So in Psalm 50, verses 1 through 5, there's a prophetic passage or picture of the Lord coming in power and glory at the end of the age to gather his people to himself. And it clearly circumscribes who these people are. It says in verse 5, Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So the ones that he gathers are the ones that have made covenant. Literally, that means those who have cut my covenant on the basis of sacrifice. That's strange language to us, but it would be well understood by all of the people who first read the Scriptures because cutting covenant was the way covenants were entered into. For example, in Genesis chapter 15 and verses 17 through 18, God is making a covenant with Abraham. And this is how it goes. He says, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, and a dove and a young pigeon. He, Abraham, brought all these animals to him, split them down the middle, and laid the halves opposite each other. So there's a pile of animal pieces. And then in verse 18, it says, When the sun was down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch moved between the split carcasses. That's when God made covenant with Abraham. That's how covenant was made in those days. The animals were, were killed, separated, divided, put, made like a gauntlet. And the covenant people who were entering into covenant walked between them. It says in Jeremiah 34, verse 18, everyone who violated my covenant, who didn't do what was solemnly promised in the covenant ceremony when they split the young bull into two halves and walked between them, all those people that day who walked between the two halves of the bull. So that was how it was done in those days. And as you walk between the gauntlet of these cut pieces, effectively, you were saying, if I violate the terms of our agreement, then let my life become like the lives of these animals. My life is your life. My resources are yours. My supply is at your disposal. I no longer live for myself. I live for you. And if you follow that story through, you'll know that much later, God came to Abraham and said to him, I want the most precious thing you have. I want your only son. You and I are in covenant. He is no longer yours. He's mine. And to his eternal credit, Abraham didn't falter. By the way, just as an aside, you know, we postmoderns are horrified that God indicated that he wanted Isaac slain. The ancients choked over and were shocked by the fact that Jehovah didn't claim him because all of the other gods of that time demanded child sacrifice. Whether it was Moloch or Chemosh or Baal, they demanded your children and they slew them. Jehovah didn't. He's different. 2,000 years later, God in his turn fulfilled his part of the covenant. To meet the need of Abraham and his descendants, God offered up his only son, only this time there was no last-minute reprieve. You know, the bedrock of covenant, of genuine relational community, is commitment. We are bound by loyalty, 
and by faithfulness to our covenantal partners. And it's that idea of wholehearted commitment and covenant loyalty that is just an anathema to the postmodern mind. We are not only postmodern, we're post-covenantal. If we enter into any kind of relationship today, they are more often than not contractual rather than covenantal, and there's a big difference. In a contract, we exchange one good for another. Covenant is the giving of oneself to another. You can opt out of a contract, but a covenant is about having strength to hold up your part of a promise. promise. Covenants are trust-based promises that rely on your integrity and your discipline. While contracts may be enforceable by law, covenants depend on your values. Even marriage, which is probably in our society an echo of the, the last remaining echo, probably, of, of covenants, more and more in our society is becoming contractual. We, we increasingly write up prenuptial agreements for if or probably, more probably, when I might want out because you are no longer meeting my needs or because I've lost that love and feeling, baby. Covenant means our commitments are kept even though perhaps at some point in our journey, more attractive options may come along. Abraham, as you know, is considered in the New Testament our father in the faith, and commentaries have long observed that his life was a series of tests. And one of the first tests that Abraham faced was whether he would leave his barren wife Sarah for another or not. He must have, as was culturally acceptable in that time, entertained the possibility that that he should divorce Sarah because of her barrenness and take another wife and a a more eligible woman. But Abraham didn't. And a crucial point in the biblical story is that it is commitment that ultimately leads to fruitfulness. Covenantal life isn't always an easy option and we enter into covenant with no illusions. We are aware that we will be constantly faced with other opportunities that will allow us to back out of our commitments if we so wish. The creative minorities that we are considering were all characterized by deep covenantal commitment. You take Daniel and his friends in Babylon. In chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Their life was being threatened. If you know about chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, asked for it to be interpreted by the wise men. Nobody could interpret it, and so in his anger, he said, kill them all. Daniel finds out what's about to happen and that he and his friends are about to be executed along with everybody else. He goes to his companions, and they begin to pray. The Hebrew word translated companions there means to bind together, to weave together, to knit together. These guys were much more than just mates. The same Hebrew word is used in Genesis chapter 14 verse 3 where it talks about kings making a formal alliance together. They made covenant with with each other. These guys were in a covenantal relationship with each other. So your life is my life. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Your God's my God. Your people, my people. Remember Ruth? This This is covenantal commitment. And it was one of the reasons they were 
the powerful force in that culture that they were. Members of the Clapham Circle were profoundly committed to each other. They lived geographically uh, with each other. Remember in the first message I talked about the Jewish people themselves being kind of a creative minority. I don't know that you know this, but in, in many, many Jewish, um, um, what's the word, communities, they live within walking distance of the synagogue. There is something geographical that they do to, to illustrate the commitment that they have one to another. And the Clapham sect or circle were like that. Stephen Tompkins describes them as a network of friends who were powerfully bound together by their shared moral and spiritual values, by their religious mission and social activism, by their love for one another, by marriage. And we could say, and that they geographically located themselves in, Cam in the Clapham Common. They, they were totally committed to one another. And it was that commitment that created the underpinnings for their success. Alone, they never would have been able to carry through what they did. The Moravian community, profoundly committed as a covenantal community. If you know the story, at one point early in the Moravians' history, their community looked like it would be torn apart by the various views that all of the refugees brought to the theological table. Their differences over communi com communion and ceremonies and customs had them fighting with one another. Their leader, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, labored tirelessly to bring them together. He met individually with every member of the community. He preached on unity on Sunday, one sermon going for three hours on the subject. Don't you ever question the length of my sermons again, okay? <laughs> Ultimately, they drew up an agreement that they called the Brotherly Union, and all of the members of the community signed it. You know, shortly after that, and I don't think it's, I, I think it's, not coincidental, that shortly after that, the Holy Spirit fell on their community. One Sunday in 1727, August the 13th, they experienced a powerful visitation of the Holy Spirit that they called the Moravian Pentecost. And Morav that, that, that covenantal commitment, that experience with the Holy Spirit, gave them an unshakable strength of belonging together. And it was that strong sense of community that played a key role in their ability to send out and wholeheartedly support the young men and the young women that went out onto the mission field. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. And when you think of that and think of church as we know it, we are light years away from this. We simply come because, well, yeah, we enjoy the music, we might like the preaching, hopefully we might like a couple of other things, you know, sm small groups. But, but stubbornly loyal, a knotted form of relationships that go deeply intertwined. Creative minorities are an assault with an intent to kill the radically individualistic life scripts that have been handed to us by our cultural stories. And they function in a counterintuitive opposite spirit. Friends, if we want to minister to the people of our culture, we've got to be free from the idols of our culture. And the idols of our culture are all about my happiness, my fulfillment, and my dreams. And I will, you know, quote, I'll use church to advance what I, what I believe, what I want. 
And I, I think if we are ever going to be a creative minority that changes our world, we've got to rethink how we think about our communities. And I think that'll be more of a challenge than most of us imagine. For as I said before, even in church, we are shaped by the cultural stories of our times. We are dedicated option takers. We are commitment phobic. And if you don't believe me, on the next party or a function that you are involved with and inviting people to, put an RSVP on it and see how many you get in response. Because we don't respond to those things anymore. We wait till the last minute to see if anything else might come up. Someone was telling me recently that they invited someone to an event and they text back and they weren't joking, I'll be there provided I don't have a better option. I said, I think I would have texted back and said, let me help you with your options. You are, you are uninvited, <laughs> you postmodern prat. <laughs> I might have left off the last bit. <laughs> a recent a Facebook post went, I love that our church serves the poor. I posted a picture. Sorry I couldn't be there, but I've been at uni, uni so busy, I just needed some me time. You know, our radically individualistic life scripts don't fit well with our soldierly calling. You imagine telling your drill sergeant, oh, I wasn't there this morning, I just needed some me time. <laughs> Can't you just, I would, I would love to see the soldier do that, to see if he would survive. Now, I know that some of you are probably thinking, this sounds like legalism to me. He's just trying to boost attendance. He's just trying to get the numbers up. I'm, I'm not that interested in building a big church. I am very and deeply committed to trying to build big people. And I want to say something to you. You will never be a big person until you learn to get past your emotional ups and downs and you learn to be a faithful and loyal person to your commitments, to your responsibilities. Our society is blighted by the individualism that says, if I don't feel like doing it, I'm being inauthentic. And, and we are ripping the social fabric of communities apart in our push for an authenticity that is not the kind of authenticity that grown up people have. I don't mean to be offensive, but, but it's, you know, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, talking about church attendance, it says, don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together as is the habit, and the Greek word is ethos of some. You are developing ethos in your life. You might not be able to articulate it, but your choices develop ethos. And you have the choice to develop an ethos that is good and godly and healthy, or you can be led around by the nose, by your feelings. Well, I don't feel like it today. I just can't be bothered. Oh, it's too fine. It's too cold. It's too wet. It's too dry. There's too much else going on. You are, you're, you're developing ethos. How different is that from Jesus, who in Luke chapter 4 says, he went, to the, he went and gathered at the synagogue as was his custom. Same word, ethos. Jesus developed an ethos. And I'd like to suggest to you that it's a really good thing to develop ethos. Now, that doesn't mean, you, you know, you're legalistically bound. But in the name of legalism, don't destroy 
godly discipline and habits. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, which is what it means to be a disciple, then you need to develop ethos in the areas that he develops ethos. And if you think that's just a pastor trying to get up the numbers, then you completely misunderstand me. I want to build people who are disciples, who are learning to be big people. And you've got to get beyond the emotional ups and downs that lead your life in a pathway sometimes of just complete chaos. You know, you've heard me say before, and again, unapologetically I say it, some of you think you're spontaneous. You don't know the difference between spontaneous and chaotic. If you're going to be spontaneous, you have to have a box out of which you change the script and say, wow, that's spontaneous, because it's different from the box. When you don't have a box and think you're being spontaneous, you aren't, you're just being chaotic. And there are way, way too many people in our culture who are completely chaotic. And I'm not just talking about church life, you know, church attendance. I'm talking about things in a, as serious as, as our spousal relationships, where, where we can pick up commitments and drop them just whenever we feel like it because, well, you know, just like I've lost that loving feeling. I could go on and on for hours. Some of you feel like I have, so I'm going to draw to a finish. Listen, you may in fact have a better option. It's not the point. It never has been. Psalm 15 says this, Lord, who shall abide in your tabernacle? Who will dwell in your holy hill? And then the rest of the psalm answers it. In verse 4 it says, he that swears to his own hurt and changes not. In the message translation it says, he who keeps his word even when it costs him. We need to let that sink into our postmodern putty that goes for brains. Say, boy, he's really angry today. I wonder if he didn't sleep well last night. <laughs> I feel really deeply moved over this stuff because I watch like other pastors do. You know, I, I, I get to talk to a lot of pastors and the greatest complaint, the one that I hear more often about church life than anything else is, that, that, is this issue, that people say, yes, I'll do that, and then, oh, well, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I needed some me time. It's that thing of keeping your word. You know what, I, I know this sounds like an old guy ranting, but in my father's generation, they didn't have to sign contracts, they shook hands. And that was it. That was it. Today, that means nothing. You know? And whatever they else do to... Sh <laughs> what does that mean? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's all right, I'll go home this afternoon and have a nana nap and I'll be much, much nicer when it comes to this evening's service, so don't worry. You know what? Our committed relationships, the ones that we cannot run from, are the classroom that God uses to develop our character. And he nails our foot to the ground and says, you're not moving from here until you sort this. The tragic thing in our culture is there are fewer and fewer relationships that qualify for committed ones because at the end of the day, if it's not working for me, I'm out. And the reason I get really stirred up, I just heard somebody just recently said to their pregnant wife, I'm out, you're not meeting my needs. Oh, you know, you just think, and, the, and these are people who came to our church, they aren't here now. But, but I, my heart breaks over that. 
think, how are we going to fix this? And maybe it needs some really strong talk to it, which is, I hope, what this means. You know, when, when we're in committed relationships, it's the place where our limitations and egotisms are revealed and challenged. And in the absence of those kind of relationships, we end up living the ultimate uncontested life. Wherever we are contested, we simply move on. New job, new family, new church. Uncontested life. Musicians, would you come as I quote William Williamson, who says, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on an Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds community, that there can be no other explanation other than something decisive has happened in history. That's worth repeating, in case you were watching the musicians come up and missed it. The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on an Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose lives together is so, so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds community that there can be no other explanation other than something decisive has happened in history. People look at the church and they go, they're no different. They don't do anything different from us. They divorce at the same rate we do. They change their jobs, their, their friends, their spouse, their churches at the same rate that anybody else would do. And they expect us to believe that there's been a resurrection. That's, I find that profoundly challenging. I really hope you do too. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.